Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. All right. Good morning, everybody. So, as Keith said, we're continuing in our Christ the Healer series this morning. This is our seventh week now where we're learning from the stories of Jesus' healing miracles. And uh, if you have your own Bible, I encourage you to open up to Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. Luke 8, starting in verse 40. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you uh, that we were just able to declare together uh, your holiness. Thank you for the blessing of being able to do that, to worship you. And Lord, we want to invite your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts as we look at the scriptures now. We pray that you would uh, help us to see what you want us to see. Help us to be open to whatever it is that you want to speak to us. Help us to attend to you. And even if our minds wander, Lord, help them to wander in such a way that your spirit speaks to us and instructs us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now, this story is actually picking up right where we left off two weeks ago. Uh, You might remember two weeks ago we looked at the passage where Jesus and the disciples go to the other side of the lake, to Gentile territory. And when they're there, they encounter a demon-possessed man. Uh, Jesus casts this legion of demons out into, uh, they go into a herd of pigs, and then the pigs run into the water and drown. And all the people are freaked out, and they tell Jesus, please get out of here. (laughs) And so Jesus is respecting their request. He's going from the Gentile territory back to the Jewish territory, and that's where the story picks up. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. So what we're going to do is we're going to take this story piece by piece, and we're going to do our best to enter into it, imagine what it would be like to to be there. So this man, Jairus, synagogue leader, he's going through one of the hardest things that a human being can possibly go through, watching your own child suffer with a potentially fatal illness, and it's looking like his daughter's life is about to end before it's really begun, and he feels helpless to do anything about it. But Jairus had heard about a miracle worker who was drawing crowds, who was exercising demons and healing people. And so Jairus gets out of his house, leaves his dying daughter because, hey, maybe this is like one last chance, right? 
And he goes and finds the crowd that's waiting for Jesus. Jesus steps off the boat, and immediately he goes. He throws himself at his feet, and he starts pleading, Please, my 12-year-old daughter, come to my house and heal her. And we're not told what Jesus says to Jairus, but we know what his reaction was, uh, because immediately he starts heading towards Jairus' house. And along the way, there are so many people that want something from Jesus, right? That the crowd is almost crushing him. I have to imagine that Jairus was probably furious with these people, right? Like, they're like cars refusing to yield to the ambulance. Get out of the way! This is a life or death situation! My daughter is dying. But there's about to be yet another holdup. Verse 43... And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Now, again, we're not told what Jairus was thinking in this moment, but I can't imagine that he was happy about the delay, right? Jesus stops to ask who touched me when he is being surrounded by, like, dozens of people who are crushing him, right? Come on, Jesus, let's stay on task. Don't stop this ambulance. I've noticed, maybe you've noticed this, that Jesus never seems to be in a hurry, right? He seems to be okay with interruptions. He takes breaks. He seems to know his limits, right? You might say there's a peace to his pace. And I think that that's something that's good for us to think about in this hurried age that we live in, where it's always do more, 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 right? And I think there was a peace to Jesus' pace because he had this deep, profound trust in his heavenly Father, right? Which enabled him to accept interruptions and go at the speed that was best, right? So he lets himself be interrupted. And he stops because he knows someone has touched him. And he knows that power has gone out from him. And for some reason, this requires attention. So why? Is it because Jesus wants to give the person who touched him a rebuke? To chastise them? We're told that the woman who touches him has been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And the Gospel of Mark gives us a little bit more detail. It says that she's gone to multiple doctors. They haven't been able to do anything for her. She spent all of her savings looking for a cure but she's only gotten worse. And what we might miss is, this is significant because by the standards of the law, the Old Testament law, she would have been considered unclean. The book of Leviticus, chapter 15, verses 25 through 31, you can find it there. Uh, It said that if a woman had a discharge of blood, she was unclean. And she would be unclean until seven days after the discharge stopped. 
after which she would be expected to bring two offerings to a priest for her cleansing. And as long as she had the discharge, she would be considered unclean, and if anyone touched her, that person would be considered unclean until the end of the day, and they would no longer be unclean by the end of the day, provided that they washed themselves and their clothes with water before sunset. Now, I know rules like this raise all kinds of questions for us. Like, what? Why? Why would this be part of the law, you know? Now, to be clear, when somebody was considered unclean, it didn't mean that they had sinned necessarily, okay? So, like, if a woman gave birth, she was considered unclean for a certain period of time after that. So it wasn't like, oh, you committed a sin, but there was something about your state where you were not considered um, prepared to go into the temple, to go into a holy place. Um, so that's what, when you think about cleanliness, that's what you want to think. You don't want to think sinful, but you want to think you weren't able to enter into a holy space. This is actually how uh, Leviticus 15.31 puts it. You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place. So the law said... If you're going to come into the temple, into the holy place, then you have to honor God by being ceremonially clean. And if you enter into the holy place without being ceremonially clean, you're risking your life. Not because somebody is going to kill you, but because simply by entering into that holy space in an unclean state, it's like walking into a pool with an electric wire. You, you are risking sudden death. And according to the law, there were all kinds of things that could make you unclean. And for a woman, one of those things was if she was on her period. Now again, we might ask, why? Why would this natural bodily function be considered unclean? Why would it be that if you were experiencing that natural body func bodily function, that going into the temple could mean sudden death? Honestly, I don't know. But if it helps at all, we should recognize that there were the same rules that existed for men and their own emissions. Okay? So this was not just solely in the case of women. But whatever the reason was, what we need to recognize is that this woman would have been considered chronically unclean. Twelve years now. And even though that uncleanness was not in itself sinful, chronic uncleanness led people to suspect that you'd probably done something wrong. Something to deserve being in this kind of condition. And so people would have if they knew about this woman and that she had been in this state for 12 years, they might think, well, you know, she must have done something. One commentary I looked at said, this woman could not touch or be touched, was probably now divorced or had never married, and was marginal to the rest of Jewish society. So this has been her condition now for 12 years, which, interestingly, is the same amount of time that Jairus' daughter has been alive. Right? So long enough to give up hope that things are ever going to change. 
But this woman sees in Jesus someone who might be able to heal what all the doctors and all her life savings could not. So she fights her way through the crowd, and she grabs Jesus' cloak, and immediately she's healed. And so Jesus freezes. Who touched me? I think the woman must have been terrified. Right? Because she, an unclean person, had just presumed to touch a holy man. That's like walking into the temple, walking into the Holy of Holies in her unclean state. That's like walking into the pool with the exposed electrical wire. And so as soon as she heard Jesus say, who touched me? She must have thought, is he mad that I defiled him? Does he realize that I just foisted my uncleanness upon him? In grabbing on to the holy, have I just brought judgment upon myself? Am I going to be like Uzzah who touched the Ark of the Covenant? Am I about to be struck down dead? She had hoped to be able to sneak away undetected. But when she realizes that Jesus knows that power went out from him, she realizes there's no use in hiding. So continuing in verse 47. Then the woman, oops, sorry. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. So now everybody in the crowd knows what this woman's condition is, and they know that she, as an unclean person, touched the holy man. So they must have all been waiting in suspense. Like, how is Jesus going to respond to this? What is he going to say? And this is how he responds. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. No rebuke, just words of healing and peace. Jesus didn't halt his trip to save Jairus' daughter in order to give this woman a stern talking to about what's proper and appropriate. He stopped to call her daughter to affirm her value and worth and to let everybody around know this woman is a great example of good faith, the kind of faith that's worth celebrating. But this grace-filled, beautiful moment is about to be interrupted with some bad news. So continuing in verse 49, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone. 
what had happened. So at the point when all hope seems lost, Jesus tells Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. Now, what is Jesus really saying to Jairus there? Is he saying, Jairus, if you believe hard enough that I'm going to heal your daughter, then it will happen. So start summoning up that faith. I'd say you're at about a 50% confidence level right now. Get it up to 95, and then I'll be able to, to heal her. Is that what Jesus means? Some people think that way. I've noticed some people think that way. And then they take that interpretation and they apply it to their own lives. And they think, well, if I can just believe that I will be healed enough, then I will be healed. Or if I can just believe enough that someone that I love will be healed, then it will happen. Then it will unlock the healing. And then what happens if the healing doesn't happen? Whose fault is it? It's your fault, right? But we need to ask ourselves, do we really think that Jesus could have gotten to that house, taken that dead little girl's hand, and then said, Ah, oh, Jairus, you're only at 90% confidence. I can't do it. That doesn't sound right, right? That doesn't make sense. When Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed, I don't hear him saying, believe your daughter will be healed, and if you believe hard enough, then it will happen. I hear him saying, don't be afraid, trust me. I'm going to heal her. Just trust me. You can't do anything else now but believe. So believe me. Now, you might counter back, well, hold on, Ryan. Didn't Jesus just tell that woman that her faith healed her? And aren't there times in Scripture where Jesus says things like, may it be done to you according to your faith? So doesn't that mean that being confident of healing is what makes it so that we get healed? Isn't that a reasonable conclusion? And I would say that's not quite right. The kind of faith that Jesus celebrates is not just a faith in healing, but a faith in him. When he says to the woman, daughter, your faith has healed you, he's not saying, daughter, your certainty that you would be healed has healed you. He's saying, daughter, your faith in me has healed you. Your faith that I am sent from God and that the presence of God is in me has healed you. Your faith that I am someone special that made you get out of your house and come and grab onto my cloak, that faith in me has healed you. And that might sound like a minor distinction, but it's not. It's important. The kind of faith that Jesus celebrates is not the wishful thinking of New Age manifestation, Right? Envision it, believe it, believe it hard enough, and then you'll make it happen. That's not, that's not the faith Jesus affirms. The kind of faith that Jesus celebrates is trust in him. 
And Jesus says that if we can manage just a little bit of that trust in him, great things can happen. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. So the mustard seed of faith is the little bit of faith that gets us to go to Jesus. It's the little bit of faith that leads us to pray to Jesus. It's the little bit of faith that got Jairus and that woman out of their homes to take a chance on Jesus. And if we have that little bit of faith, remarkable things can happen. It's not about raising your confidence from 50% to 95%. It's about the, the object of your confidence and whether or not it's Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, if you can manage 95% certainty that I'm going to heal you, well, then I will do it. Right? He says, if you can manage just a little bit of faith in me, great things are possible. Now you might say, okay, appreciate the clarification, but I do think I have that mustard seed of faith in Jesus, and I've been praying for physical healing of some kind, and it hasn't happened. So now what? <laughs> what do you say to that? Good question. Uh, I said a few weeks ago that I know I can't avoid some of the tough questions that this series raises forever and that eventually we get to some of them, so I'm going to try to tackle that a little bit right now. I'll try to speak, speak plainly. And the first thing I would say is that I don't think the New Testament teaches us that if we have sufficient faith in Jesus, we will always experience immediate physical healing. I don't think the New Testament teaches us that if we have sufficient faith in Jesus, we will always experience immediate physical healing. Now, I understand why some people read these stories and think that that is the case. I get it. I understand why they go in that direction. But, if that's our interpretation of these passages, we do have a problem, right? Which is, last I checked, all followers of Jesus over the last 2,000 years have had a 100% mortality rate, right? And most of those deaths, you can connect to some kind of illness, right? Christians get cancer. Christians contract fatal viruses, these things happen, right? And this has been true since the very first generation of the church. The first generation of the church passed away, right? But that wasn't seen as a threat to the early church's faith. We're still here. So we have to recognize this reality, right? There's no, there's no value in pretending otherwise. So we should not see these stories as promises that if we just have enough faith, physical healing is always going to happen right here and right now. But they should open us up to recognize that a little bit of faith in Jesus makes incredible things possible. When we trust in Jesus, it's like it opens up a channel of healing power that would not otherwise be open. 
And there are so many testimonies of people who have experienced healings that modern medicine cannot explain, and they attribute that healing to Jesus. So many stories like that. In fact, uh, next week, we're going to be hearing a personal testimony from someone who has a story like that. So don't miss that. These stories should open us up to that possibility of miraculous healing. They should free us up to feel like we can pray for that kind of miraculous healing. We should see miraculous healing as within the realm of genuine possibility because of Jesus. But we should not take them as a guarantee of immediate physical healing. So they're not a, not a guarantee, but they are a guarantee that Jesus is worthy of our trust. And of course, they also demonstrate that Jesus is more powerful than sickness and death. And so we can trust Jesus for healing even after we have died. Even if the cross comes, there's resurrection after. The story of the death and resurrection of the 12-year-old girl is a great parable for what we all go through. Right? At some point, we encounter the death of a loved one. You live long enough, eventually, that happens. And maybe we've implored Jesus to stop that death from coming, but at some point, it still comes. And like Jairus, we need to hear Jesus saying to us, trust me, this isn't the end. They're only sleeping. And like Jairus, there's a period of time between when the promise is given and when the fulfillment happens. We wait for that fulfillment either until our own deaths or until Jesus returns, whatever comes first. And in the meantime, Jesus invites us to trust him, to trust that one day he will say to those who belong to him, my child, get up. Can we manage a mustard seed of faith that that is the truth? That Jesus can be trusted to do that. If we can, great things are possible. Mountains can move. I'd like us to notice one other significant detail in this story, something that you might have missed. It says that Jesus takes the hand of the dead girl when he heals her. He takes her hand. Now, that little detail shares something in common with the previous healing of the bleeding woman. Because once again, Jesus is touching someone who is unclean. Because the law said, you shouldn't touch a corpse if you want to be clean. Right? If you've touched a corpse, then you are ceremonially unclean. So in both of these miracles, someone unclean comes in contact with Jesus. Jesus, the Holy One, the temple of God in the flesh, the Holy of Holies living and walking among us, right? But in both cases, when the unclean person is touched by the Holy of Holies, she's not destroyed. She's healed and she's cleansed, right? 
Their uncleanness does not make Jesus unholy. Instead, Jesus' holy power cleanses them. And this is a theme that came up earlier in the series, but I think it bears repeating because it's, it's so great. Jesus' cleansing power is stronger than all of our dirt. It overwhelms it. You know, I love the moment when the woman is afraid that Jesus is going to be mad at her for touching him. And she's just revealed to the whole crowd that she's unclean, chronically unclean, and yet Jesus is not embarrassed or upset. He's just happy that she had enough faith to reach out and grab him. Sometimes we hide from God because we don't think the Holy One will be able to tolerate our unholiness. But these stories show us that that's not the right way to think. The Holy One wants us to come to him, to reach out and grab him, even in our unholiness, so that he can cleanse us and make us new. If we can manage that mustard seed of faith that drives us to reach out for Jesus, he's not ashamed of us. He welcomes us and he proclaims, Son, daughter, your faith has made you well. Lord, I pray that this morning, if any of us are feeling unclean and dirty, that we would recognize that we can come to you, that you want to make us new, that you want to restore us and heal us, cleanse us. Lord, we we thank you that you are not ashamed of us, that you welcome us. We thank you, Lord, that your cleansing power is stronger than all of our dirt. And if any of us, Lord, are carrying shame, pain this morning, help us to bring it to you. In Jesus' name, amen.